With escalating rents, a lack of affordable units, and too many New Yorkers sleeping on the streets, our city is facing a housing emergency. Tonight, we hear directly from Mayor Eric Adams on what he plans to do to finally address New York's seemingly never-ending housing crisis. Metro Focus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin, the JPB Foundation. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Rafael P. Roman. Affordable housing or the lack of it is one of New York City's most constant and pervasive issues. From perpetual rent hikes to the city's homelessness crisis, to the never-ending fight between those who want more affordable housing and those who don't, or at least not in their neighborhoods, the need for innovative solutions to our housing problem has never been greater. Tonight, as part of our Chasing the Dream initiative, and in partnership with WNYC and Gothamist, we bring you a special conversation aimed at addressing these issues. Josefa Velasquez, an editor for WNYC, recently sat down with Mayor Adams at New York Public Radio's iconic green space to hear directly from the mayor himself about his plans for the future of housing in New York City. So, Mr. Mayor, we're really appreciative of your time here with us, and we know you have, we have you for a limited time, and housing is a massive subject that probably everyone in this room cares about. So given that, I want to make sure we talk about your housing plan that you've unveiled, the topic of homelessness, which is a huge issue here, and what our city looks like in the future. <laughs> so I want to start with the impact of the pandemic. You know, we've seen the pandemic in the last three years really spur a sense of urgency and how important affordability is for all of us. You know, it's laid bare a lot of inequities that were sort of simmering under the surface. So. And because of that, we saw just how many New Yorkers are really on the brink of being able to lose their house or not being able to afford living here. So you've unveiled this plan to create half a million units of housing in the next decade. How do we get there? Well, I, th I think that even before we engage in that conversation, you know, being the mayor, mm -hmm. uh, you know, sometimes people look at, you know, you're the mayor, you're first black ball president, state senator. Uh, captain in police department, uh, you know, that's my glory. That's not my story. Mm -hmm. And for folks like your mom and, you know, English is a second language, you know, I know what it's like to come up from family, coming up from Alabama, living in neighbors, sleeping on the floors uh, in rat-infested buildings. Um, every week we went to a new location, uh, taking a garbage bag full of clothing to school every day because mm -hmm. mom thought we were going to be thrown out and she right. wanted us to have change of clothing. So I'm not here because I read about homelessness. Mm -hmm. I'm here because my family lived it. And when you look at what's happening in this city right now, particularly uh, post-pandemic, uh, this is a city of interest. Uh, and it's a city where it's getting more and more 
uh, unaffordable. Right. And so with our plan and Jessica Katz, who has donated her life uh, to this housing issue, is to look at let's properly define what are the problems. Uh, very clear. Eight, 800,000 people moved to the city. We built 200,000 units of housing. Mm -hmm. So clearly not enough. <laughs> That's, the math doesn't add up. We have to build more. We have to build more, and we have to find the pathways to build more low-income, mm -hmm. middle-income, and market rate. Right. All three of them, and that is what our plan is looking at. And there are three areas that uh, Jessica and the team, we have focused on. Uh, one, uh, the politics of it. If you only know how many times I hear people stand on the steps of City Hall and state housing is a right, housing is a right. Okay, then you know what? How about me building it in your community? Oh, no, it's not a right there. You know, I got my park. I have my subway station. I have my Whole food. Mm -hmm. We don't need another building in our community. So let me ask you, how do you change people's minds then? Well, number one, we have to start asking what, what uh, Borough President Levine did. Mm -hmm. At his state of the borough, he said, here are the places in my borough we can build. Mm. Eric Botcher did it. Councilman Powers did it. So every city council person, every state senator, every assembly person should be saying to my office, here's where you can build in mm. our community. We have a lot of sacred cows with communities where we have the loudest Mm -hmm. Yet they don't want to build any affordable housing in their communities. That's unacceptable. Right. We should be building, particularly in places in Manhattan, where you have access to food, access mm -hmm. to transportation, access to good schools. If we want to integrate a segregated city, then we need to start building in those communities that have access to these good qualities that we're seeing throughout the city. Mm -hmm. And let me ask you, so what are the biggest barriers aside from people saying, no, I don't want this in my backyard? How do we get to building or even converting places to well, A couple of things we need to look at. Number one, we have to protect what we have. Mm -hmm. NYCHA has been abandoned by the federal government. We are not doing the right thing on a state level. Uh, we need to think differently about NYCHA, and we need to engage the tenants in doing so. So we, ha we have to ensure that we make uh, how uh, NYCHA, that is the best access to affordable housing we mm -hmm. have. Too many units are laying vacant. Uh, it is challenging to determine who controls NYCHA nowadays mm -hmm. with the special monitor. Uh, who's actually in control? Um, what happened at the Reese High, um, Houses, uh, what, what I didn't like, I couldn't fire the person who I believe dropped the ball in Reese Houses. Mm -hmm. So we need to get into NYCHA, think differently about the NYCHA. I'm excited about the project in Chelsea. Mm -hmm. It's a new way of thinking. Right. Uh, people who are stating that we need 30, uh, $35 billion coming from the federal government, we're not getting it. Right. With Republican-controlled house, and we need to stop lying about it and act like and keep tell, telling NYCHA residents, hold on. Those bugles we hear, that's not the Calvary. That's mm. taps. NYCHA is dying, and we need to fix NYCHA. So $35 billion, $40 billion is almost an unthinkable amount of money, and NYCHA's housing is obviously aging, like, rapidly. So what can the city do, if anything, to make sure that some of the fixes that need to occur actually happen considering the state of NYCHA is so poor now. Look at some of the buildings. It's more expensive uh, to repair them yeah. than tearing down and building up. 
There's a concept that is being floated around in the Chelsea area mm-hmm. where a building would be torn down, before first build a building that the tenants will go right into the building you built, tear mm-hmm. down the building that uh, that they're leaving, yeah. zero displacement, place them in brand new apartments. Mm-hmm. I've been in the NYCHA buildings, and I know that some of these buildings are dilapidated to the state of repairing them is unacceptable. You know, I gutted my home when I moved in, and if I attempted to fix it instead of a complete right. gut job, it would have been a waste of time. Yeah. But then we need to look at some of the politics, some of the smart things that we're presented, about 114 different changes we believe we need to do on how we are redundancy and repeated reviews over and over again, mm-hmm. stating in places we couldn't we couldn't build, was not, not acceptable to build, building, uh, refusing to build higher. Mm-hmm. So we have to look at each level, the what we can do as a city, what we can do in Albany, and what we can do with some of the processes that needs to be uh, redefined. Mm-hmm. So going back to your housing proposal, I mean, half a million units in 10 years, that sounds great. I mean, we need all the housing we can get, but is there anything you can do now in six months, in a year, to house people who need it? Well, a couple of things. We need to real, have a real conversation about 421A, uh, a real, vis- real, real vision of it. We need to look at J, um, uh, J51. Uh, there are things that mm-hmm. are taking place right now in Albany. And I really take my hat off even to the governor, what the governor is doing about regional. Uh, we need to look at the region because mm-hmm. this is a regional uh, problem. And then immediately, when we got in office, we had 2,500 units of, 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 of apartments that were vacant. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jessica, Jessica Katz came in, immediately put in plan, a, a place a plan where we put 1,000 a, a people in. I had the team give me a flow chart of the process, mm-hmm. and the redundancy was unbelievable. You know, there was just an antiquated method of how do you take people to move them into available units? That's mm-hmm. unacceptable, and there's an easier way to do it, and that's what the team is putting in place. So just to go back on your um, housing proposal, one of them is to take these empty office buildings. You know, the pandemic really brought in this era of hybrid work and remote work where people aren't spending as much time at, in mainland Manhattan than they were back in the day. So I'm curious to hear from you how those conversations are going with Albany. I mean, just across the street, we have an empty office building. How do we turn those into apartments? We did it before. We did it after September 11. I was a rookie cop in the, uh, District 2 in Lower Manhattan. And uh, that area was a, a basically a 9 to 6 environment. Uh, 6 p.m., it was dead downtown. Uh, we understood after September 11, we thought differently. Now you have a thriving community uh, in the area. Uh, many of these buildings uh, can be converted uh, into uh, housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have about 10 million square feet, feet of real estate uh, right now that's not being used. And even folks who do have office spaces, they're downsizing. Right. They're not continuing to have the large uh, foot, uh, floor plan. And so there's a great opportunity. We had a project down uh, in Manhattan off of, off of uh, William Street mm-hmm. that is a conversion. It's being conversion, converted into uh, housing, but the problem is it's being converted into uh, market rate. 
Right. Because if we give the incentive to allow to, to, it to be converted into affordable housing, there's some great opportunities to do so. So how do you define affordable and how do we make sure that there is affordable housing? Because affordable to one person might be different from someone else. Without a doubt. And that's a question that I hear all the time. It's, it has almost become a bumper sticker. <laughs> uh, the reality is we've done a great job of increasing the minimum wage uh, uh, for fast uh, food workers. Mm -hmm. If you have a full-time person working at McDonald's and his spouse or her spouse is a teacher, we've pushed them out of the low, low income. Mm -hmm. So affordable to me is market, middle, low income, mm -hmm. because I need my middle income and my market individuals in the city as well. If we take away uh, the uh, moderate incomes, we're going we're going to be forcing the uh, uh, market rates into those apartments that are in the low income. And so affordable is a combination. It's a diversity of this city. I need my fast food workers, my deliveristas, but I also need my teachers. I need my accountants. And we had 200,000 of African Americans that have left this city. Mm -hmm because it's too expensive, as well as with the security issues we are facing. So affordable to me is every income level, because that's what the city is comprised of. Right. You mentioned earlier 421A and J51. So for the folks in the crowd who don't know uh, the wonky housing policies, <laughs> these are tax programs that give uh, incentives to developers if they set aside a portion of their housing towards affordable housing. And that uh, expired a one, two years ago now. Yes. Time is a flat circle mm -hmm. when it comes to the pandemic. Um, so I'm curious about how you're pushing those proposals uh, up in Albany and how, if you could explain to the crowd, the crowd why that's needed, why those tax programs are needed now. Well, m many people thought that if we took away 421A, they said it was a giveaway to the developers. It was not. It was an incentive to build. You want to modify it, then do the modification. Uh, but when you look at what's in the pipeline, there's a complete drying up of the pipeline. Mm -hmm. And we, we can't be so idealistic that we're not realistic. Right. Incentivizing and being smart about where you want to do the incentives would allow us to get the housing in the pipeline. And I think that's so important. And mm -hmm. then building out near of the of our, our transportation systems. That's crucial. Mm -hmm. And J51 is a, was a smart way. It should not have set on sunset. Mm -hmm. It was a smart way of ensuring that we would continue to house in repairs. You know, I grew up uh, in Brooklyn. I knew what Bushwick Avenue looked like and how people walked away mm -hmm. from their buildings. In some cases, they started fires and burned down at entire yeah. communities because it became too expensive mm -hmm. uh, to actually uh, manage those apartments. And it's crucial that we look at, in a smart way, incentive to continue repairs mm -hmm. and building in the city. So if you could put your state senator hat on for just a second, you know, <laughs> what does 421A look like or what does, you know, incentives for developers look like in order to get affordable housing at the rate that the city needs? Well, if you look at look at certain locations where it has been slower in developing, mm -hmm. uh, you look at places like where Donovan Richards is doing out in the Rockaways, Rockaways yeah. uh, you look at what's happening in the Bronx, uh, we're getting ready to build out uh, new uh, train stations in that area. We could do some real development around that area. Mm -hmm. uh, you look at even places in South Jamaica, Queens, yeah. uh, what in Leroy Comrie's district and others, uh, some of the projects near uh, the Septon Boulevard station mm -hmm. where you have the Long Island Railroad and the train to the plane. So 
if you strategically lay out where you're going to do the development mm -hmm. and the incentives, uh, it could be a real win. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned Farakaway because that's where my mom and I landed when we came to the U.S. And it's where my dad lives now. My brother and I drive up and down the street, hey Danny, um, and always talk about like how is it possible that this area has not been developed since it's beachfront property. There's a subway close by and it's, you know, untouched almost by, you know, development, but maybe that changes and it's such an interesting community and so robust. And, and here's what I heard when I was campaigning no matter which community I traveled in, and you think about it also, mm. people ask two questions when they go to move somewhere. How good are the schools? How safe is the community? Mm -hmm. Public safety is the prerequisite to our prosperity and making sure our schools are good. And when you look at the safety issue in Rockaway that we've been tackling and the qualities of the schools, when you're looking to raise a family somewhere, the first thing you want to know is how good are the schools how safe is the community? Mm -hmm. We make the community safer, and we improve upon the school system, which Chancellor Banks is doing. Uh, you will see people rush into that beautiful yeah. waterfront community. Yeah, I mean, there's one thing that always sticks in my mind, and it's the words of Jimmy McMillan, the perennial candidate, saying the rent is too <laughs> damn high. But it's not just rent right now, right? It's also home prices. So I'm curious if there's anything the city could do to bring down those costs. Well, it's a combination of things. We have to get back in the business of home ownership. I am blown away, uh, you know, when I was a child that mom was able to purchase a, a, a home in Queens. We live in a four-story rat-infested tenement, and she was able to purchase that home by cleaning the homes of others. Yeah. Uh, that dream is snatched away when you look at this, this city, the cost of purchasing a home. So we've uh, put around $9 million into assisting and down payments uh, in fiscal year 2022, mm -hmm. $53 million in expanding uh, you know, home ownership. So the goal is to really do a combination, allow people the opportunity to the pathway of home, home ownership mm -hmm. and, and being creative in doing so, finding those different opportunities. If my, first, my first ownership was a co-op. Mm -hmm. I was able to have a co-op, a low-income co-op, was able to move into, a, I went from renting to a co-op to purchasing my three uh, family home. And mind you, my three family home, I have tenants in there for the last almost 15 years. Mm -hmm. When they signed their lease, I signed into the lease. I can never raise your rent as long as you are in my building. We have to stop talking about it and being about it. Mm, and actually do it. Is yes. everything? So, you know, we have here a question from one of the folks on in our audience, Judith from the West Village, and she wants to know, how do you envision the, the conversion of commercial buildings to residential to include very affordable housing? Well, it's a combination. If we do the right changes in Albany, then we could have a conversation and move away from the market rate that mm -hmm. we saw down downtown. And I believe in this concept, something I saw in other countries called, instead of we work, we live. My son lived differently. He has a stove in his apartment. I don't think he knows how to turn it on. <laughs> you know, he eats out. Yeah. He loves this shared living. So why can't we do a real examination of the rules that state every bedroom must have a window? You don't need mm -hmm. no window when you're sleeping. It should be dark, you know? And instead of doing that, have studio apartments, mm -hmm. then share living and working spaces. They, my son, enjoy that that whole dormitory mm -hmm. sort of a setting. I think we have to reinvent 
our conversation, a modern day almost SRO, SRO concept. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some great models I've saw across, across the globe. It's affordable. Mm -hmm. We could tie in real affordable prices to it, and then we do, do, do allow the cross-pollination of ideas and people living together. Gotcha. So I want to shift gears a little bit to talk about homelessness. I mean, in the last few years alone, we've seen a rising number of homeless people. And part of that is due to the fact that we have this influx of asylum seekers who've been coming into this country over the last year. So I know you've asked for federal assistance, but absent that, what can the city do to bring down the number of people who are living without shelter? You know, great question. And, you know, I think that uh, you know, I'm a big upstream thinker. And when you look at our policies, you, you'll see we're rooted in upstream. Mm. Uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu said, spend a lifetime pulling people out of the river instead of going upstream and preventing them from falling in the first place. Mm -hmm. So we have to think differently. That's why we are investing in forced care uh, and also investing in uh, those other issues that are upstream thinking. Mm -hmm. A young child growing up in a homeless shelter is three times less likely to graduate from high school. If you don't educate, you will incarcerate. And that's why we see 80% of our inmates at Rikers Island don't have a high school diploma or equivalency diploma. We're feeding the criminal justice mm -hmm. and the homeless crisis. And so when we took office, uh, I spent January and February in the streets. You mm -hmm. know, people criticize uh, our plan, but I went to the streets January and February at night by myself visited people in encampments and in tents mm -hmm. and in boxes. What, I, what did I see inside? Drug paraphernalia, human waste, schizophrenic, bipolar, stale food, unkept. It was unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And so our mission in the subway system, when I wrote the subway system, we had a woman that was sleeping under the stairs in the subway system, and we normalized that. We normalized people in, on, on the trains living in unkept condition. Mm -hmm. That was just unacceptable for me. 4,000 people, we were able to get off the subway system. Over 1,000, roughly 1,200 are still in wraparound services. One of the most touching stories that I know of was a woman that lived on the street for almost 25 years. I'm, giving, I'm, I'm hoping to go see her in the next day or so. We now have in a wraparound service. She's off the street. She's been there for a while, stabilizing her. Dr. Fasan, who is a master at this whole concept, rolled out the second phase of our uh, homeless mm -hmm. issue. Many of our homeless uh, individuals are dealing with severe mental health uh, issues. Mm -hmm. And we have to give them the services they deserve. Because you know what happens? Close to 48% of the people on Rikers Island have uh, mental health issues. 18% have severe mental health issues. We wait until they commit a crime, and then we give them the support. Mm. So the audacity of Eric of saying, no, I'm going to help you before you commit a crime. I'm going to help you before you go to the emergency room. I'm going to help you before you harm yourself. We have to be proactive and not reactive. And that is why we're focusing on the homelessness that we're seeing in the city. And if there a point where we can claim or the city can claim like, yes, this is a success, I mean, Having wraparound services and following someone through treatment, that takes a, a long time, right? Like that takes yes, it does. An, a considerable amount of money. So at what point can we claim, okay, we've gotten this under control? Is there a point? Uh, listen, I'm hoping we can. You know, this is a, what, a 40-year problem. Yeah. Uh, then to add on the 40-year problem, think about what happened Janu January 1st, 2022. When I became mayor, <clears throat> we had about... Uh, 35,000 people in our homeless systems mm -hmm. scattered out. In one year, 
we're now having 51,000 people on top of that. 51,000 mm -hmm. that came in one, a little over a year. Not only did we give them food, shelter, clothing, education, health care, we treated them with dignity that they deserve. Mm -hmm. And every one of them that I visited, you know what they said? We don't want free food. We don't want free health care. We want to work. Right. And when you add that on, nowhere else in the country is doing what the people of New York City is doing. Nowhere else. I visited El Paso. I visited Los Angeles. I visit, visited other cities. We're the only place in the country that are treating people who are fleeing persecution to come mm -hmm. here with the dignity they, they, they deserve. So what happens next to all these folks? I mean, it seems that Congress has been deadlocked on immigration reform for as long as I've been alive, basically. So is there anything that the city can be doing to make sure that they're now finding work or integrating them into this neighborhood or into their neighborhoods? Well, they want to. And uh, we, we rolled out today with Governor Hoku, Kathy Wilder, the partnership. Mm -hmm. uh, we love New York. And it's really calling us all uh, to play our part. Uh, you know, to go, go to the young person in a homeless shelter. Uh, go speak with an asylum seeker and, you know, help them understand uh, uh, English. If mm -hmm. we just volunteer, 8.5 million people, if we just volunteer one hour a week, every, every Wednesday night at 9 p.m., I'm on 34th Street between 7th and 8th Avenue handing out food to people who are down on their, uh, on their luck, going mm -hmm. through a difficult time. And you know what it means for them to walk and get a plate of food from the mayor of the city of New York? knowing he's there, and then we go over to the side and I speak with them mm -hmm. about what are their issues, engaging with them one-on-one. On, one on one. We all can do that. Right. Everyone can just donate just one hour a week. Everyone's talking about Rikers Island. I don't see them on Rikers. I've been on Rikers Island more than any mayor in the history of New York City. Thanksgiving Day, mm -hmm. I spent Thanksgiving Day with a woman who just gave birth on Rikers Island. We need to all volunteer. Mm. We need to all say Here's, here's where I am in my life. I'm a believer. You deposit into the social bank of life. You could draw on the equity when you need it. Mm. And while government does its job, there's a responsibility for citizens to do their job. Mm. And we need to step up, and we're not stepping up. And we have to be honest about are we stepping up. It's a, this is a Michael Jackson moment. Got to look at the man and the woman in the mirror and see what you're doing. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.